Uh, but first, an announcement was just made from the Premier, as well as the Tourism Minister, talking about supports for tourism organizations in this province. And a specific question was put to the Premier about the PNE by Global's Keith Baldry. Well, certainly it's the attractions like the PNE, not for profits, that we had in mind when we developed the program. Uh, and I know that the PNE has other options through the city of Vancouver primarily. Uh, and we're going to continue to work with both the city and the PNE, and of course other attractions across the province. But this was designed for the PNE to make the application. I look forward to seeing that material when it comes forward. I know, Keith, uh, the PNE has a particular spot in your heart uh, from your time, uh, like me, working in the tourism sector as a kid. Any more detail beyond that? I mean, so are you ruling out giving the PE more money, or is there an option for the PE to qualify for further funding beyond this particular program? When the PE applies for this program, we'll have a better understanding of the challenges that they face, and we'll work with stakeholders across the piece who have a, a vested interest in the success at Playland and the PE uh, to make sure that it can go forward. But uh, we have a whole bunch of attractions across the province that have been waiting for this announcement, and I know they're all going to be excited about it, and I'm sure the PE will be as well. Well, let's find out what the PNE is or how things are factoring in for the PNE. And PNE spokesperson Laura Balance joins me on the line now. Laura, thanks so much for being with us. No, thank you for having me. So, what's your response to the announcement and what you just heard there from the Premier? Well, um, you know, I think it's really important, and I will say right off the top that um, we're glad uh, that that there is money flowing. We are incredibly um, grateful that uh, that they specifically mentioned us today. Um, we do think it is important um, that the government have, uh, you know, we certainly heard from the Premier that he is interested in learning more about our situation, and, and so that is um, very good news for us. We are quite certain that once they hear our story and, and understand um, our need and our impact, uh, that they will be able to understand why our request is $8 million. And so I think um, we would be in the category of applying for the up to $1 million grant, uh, and that we will immediately do so. Um, we have been very transparent about the fact that what we actually need is $8 million, not to make us whole by the end of 2021, but to give us um, a position to be successful to climb out of, of this situation. So I think it's it's a good start. It won't be enough to do uh, what we need to do, and we will work with any order of government um, that is interested in hearing our story and and we are hopeful and confident that as people come to understand our situation that it will become very evident that investing uh, in the PE is an incredibly good investment for this province. Uh, and you mentioned that as well, and that kind of went to Keith's first question there, that even if the PE is is granted the grant that you could apply for, so that goes under the major attractions in urban centres that receive mm-hmm. 75,000 or more visit, visitors per year. Uh, so eligible up to 1 million, but like you said, if the PE has already said that, that the attraction needs 8 million, how do you find that other 7 million? Well, I mean, that's the job that we'll be working on. And I think it's really important that people understand what we're actually talking about here. As an organization, and and as you just said, organizations of 150,000 or more people, um, our organization for 2 million people annually, we have a $60 million, uh, we're a $60 million a year entity. So we're much larger, and it's very difficult to compare with some of the other attractions 
albeit they are incredibly valuable to this province, a million dollars for one organization, for an organization the size of the PE is simply not enough. And so we will continue to work and we're also going to continue to um, educate government that because of our unique corporate structure at the PE, we have not been eligible for a single dollar of guaranteed funding, whether that be uh, a guaranteed uh, funding under the federal wage subsidy. But also, we have not received a single dollar of grant from any of the other programs where um, the vast majority of other organizations that will be seeking these grants um, will have had the ability to access that. So I think it's it's very important that people understand the true reality of uh, what the situation is with the P&E and also um, understand our impact. We're the largest employer of youth in this province. We generate $200 million a year back into the region in positive economic impact. We employ 4,300 people a year, and we're talking about organizations that might be also applying for this money that are, you know, are employing 50 or 150 people. So uh, we're much larger, and and thus um, the, the impact of COVID, which... Um, you know, $46 million in lost revenue in 2020 and $40 million forecasted in 2021 um, is significant. So as a combined total of $86 million in lost revenue to date is very different than what we're talking about with these other organizations. And we understand that the needs are significant, but we believe that there is a good case to be made to um, to bring the P&E into a fair position to be able to climb out of this um, as we emerge from COVID. Uh, so if you do apply for this or say you are, are, are get, get the $1 million and I know they said during the news conference, they wanted to get that money out in July. What does a million dollars in July do? Well, it, it will not place us in a position to be able to fully climb out of our debt on our own. We had asked for $8 million recognizing that by the end of this year, we're forecasted to be $15 million in debt. And for an organization that um, directly contributes into the maintenance um, of both Hastings Park, the 114 acres, and the building's annual dollars and makes about a million dollars beyond that that is reinvested back into the community, having a $15 million debt or, or $14 million is just not... Uh, it's not surmountable um, moving forward. And we are a not-for-profit, but we need to be able to um, climb out of our debt. So, you know, what I heard in that press conference and what I was very, very pleased about was that the Premier indicated that his government would continue to work with the P&E and other orders of government to seek a resolution. I think we have heard from our elected officials at all orders of government, they recognize that the PE is important, uh, not only to the history of our province, but to the future as, as an employer and as an economic generator. And I believe that government will, as they grow to understand our story, are going to realize that, that we are an organization that doesn't ask lightly. In fact, we, we are the only entity of our kind that does not receive go- annual government subsidy pre-COVID and, and today. When people realize that um, many organizations are accessing uh, many different grants as well as the federal wage subsidy, I think when 
British Columbians understand that, then I think that we will be considered a a great investment and that this is the fair thing to do um, to respond to the P&E's one-time request. All right. Uh, We'll keep uh, keeping watch what happens next. Laura Balance, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Well, we've been looking at other countries, uh, in some cases quite enviously, uh, looking at reopening plans and uh, pictures and scenes uh, that almost look pre-pandemic. And in Denmark, there's going to be uh, a big reopening in just a couple of days. Shane Woodford joins me now, freelance journalist based in Denmark. Shane, thanks so much for joining us. Always good to come on and great to hear your voice. Uh, You too. And I wanted to talk to you more because uh, I know you wrote about this earlier. So what exactly uh, is happening in Denmark as far as this return, uh, as you put it, to almost normal? Yeah, we're going to see phase three of a reopening on May 21st. Uh, And basically, they're going to whatever isn't reopened now is going to be fully reopened then. So basically all shops, all restaurants, all stores. Uh, movie theaters, uh, the list goes on and on and on. Schools go back to full capacity. Uh, we're in a program right now where in certain school situations, uh, classroom capacity, depending what level you're at, could be you know 20% or 50%, or they're doing every other day, so one group in classroom, the other group online, uh, that kind of stuff. So on May 21st and after, uh, all things school and sort of life-related go back to sort of quasi-normal, uh, albeit with Uh, the requirement for a corona passport to get into a lot of things like restaurants or movie theaters or to go to events, uh, that kind of stuff. And, of course, we're still wearing masks uh, here and there and and using lots of hand disinfectant and that kind of stuff. So COVID is still very much here, but uh, next week things are going to take a large step towards quote-unquote normal, and that with rising infection rates, by the way, Joe. With rising infection rates? Yeah, we're getting about... uh, been creeping up from about seven to eight to nine an hour, kind of in and around the thousand infection mark. Uh, the Staten Serum Institute, which is sort of uh, Denmark's version of the CDC here, actually came out today and said, listen, yes, infections are rising, uh, but these are what we more or less expected when we did the projections for the reopening, so it's nothing to be alarmed about. Um, of course, they're hoping to vaccinate, you know, at a pace that's going to kind of keep ahead of the infection rate, but uh, To be honest with you, if there's one sort of silver lining on your side of the ocean uh, this time, Jill, it's the fact that uh, Canada and B.C. and the rest of the provinces have really put uh, rocket jets on your vaccination effort here in Denmark. uh, We're still plodding along more or less uh, where we have been in the last month or two. So there's been no real major push uh, that has shown up yet that they've been promising to really get us vaccinated. Uh, when you talk, though, about uh, the passport, and I, meant, I noticed that you were writing, too, uh, interesting that uh, fully vaccinated people, uh, those, that, those major changes, those will also be extended to people with one uh, vaccination dose. So how, does that, how is that going to work as far as uh, a coronavirus passport? Yeah, so uh, it's called the coronavirus passport, but what it is is it's uh, an app on my phone, and it shows sort of three tiers of information. One, it says right now, it says, uh, okay, are you fully vaccinated? I for on and not, but if I had two doses, that information would be there, including what type of vaccine and exactly when my second dose was. Uh, the other piece of information it shows is whether I've had COVID or not. So let's say I had COVID in, I don't know, January and recovered then there's a certain period of time where you're thought to be immune uh, because you have the antibodies from surviving the disease. And the other uh, third tier of information that allows you to kind of go in and access events and eat in restaurants and that kind of stuff 
uh, would be a negative COVID test. Uh, right now, that's, you need one that's no more than 72 hours old. And so my last test result would show up uh, on this thing. So uh, as you alluded to, uh, as of May 21st, in the next phase of reopening, they've actually made an adjustment and they've extended the freedoms uh, associated to this point with fully vaccinated individuals. Uh, that will be extended to people who've had one dose. So two weeks after your first shot, uh, as of May 21st, once they've made the adjustments on the app to show that information, uh, you'll no longer have to go out and get tested every two or three days to go eat in a restaurant or do whatever. We're testing um, massive numbers here, Jill. Yesterday, we tested over 700,000 people. Wow. Uh, and do you, are, are people embracing this? What are the, the feelings about this reopening? And I should mention, too, uh, you mentioned or you wrote about the fact that June 11th, uh, 100 people can gather indoors by August 1st uh, out, yeah. outside the assembly. Well, there'll be no ban on any type of assembly. How are people reacting? Yeah, so far, so good. I mean, there's some trepidation when you when you look at the numbers. Um, it's interesting. The the big hang up right now is because the vaccination effort is you know not exactly on turbo, so we're not really knocking down the numbers on the vaccination side. So there's a real heavy reliance on the testing regime, which they have done a fantastic job of building up. But um, that also comes with some really big logistical problems, Joe. Like we just had a long weekend uh, last weekend, and uh, my wife and I decided we wanted to go out uh, to a restaurant for the first time in a really, really long time. Uh, And so we went to go get tested, and we couldn't get an appointment. They were all booked up for the next two days because it was a long weekend, and everybody was trying to get tested so they could go out and do all sorts of stuff. Uh, we tried to stand in line, but they were hours and hours long, and we just couldn't make that work. We're trying to pick our son up from school and that kind of stuff. Uh, so we ended up having to not go to the restaurant. And I'm seeing you know, some stuff here in Denmark where different businesses, restaurants among them, are complaining that the logistics of having to have the test and just you know, the sheer waiting time, and in some cases in some towns, you know, you've got to drive a little distance away to get the test and come back, and people just aren't doing it, and there's some business being lost there. So it's interesting that's become sort of a hurdle, even though Denmark is testing by far the most of any country in the world. All right. Well, Shane, it's uh, still great to see uh, countries that do have concrete reopening plans and are able to put that out there and tell uh, citizens exactly what to expect. We'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for making some time for us. Always a pleasure. You guys stay safe. Well, earlier today, Vancouver Police held a news conference with a very special guest, a member of a DNA analysis lab, and they are going to be helping the VPD do genealogical testing in hopes that it can help solve a cold case. And we're talking about the case, which is known as Babes in the Woods. It's dating back all the way to 1953. That's when remains were found in Stanley Park uh, near Beaver Lake. Uh, Take a listen. This is Sergeant Steve Addison talking about what they hope uh, this partnership could lead them to. The process that the Redgrave team is undertaking, uh, we're hoping will help us identify the boys um, to give them uh, a name uh, as well as help us understand who may have been responsible for this. Uh, and don't forget, we're talking about uh, a murder or two murders that happened in 1948. So uh, we're quite realistic that in understanding that uh, it's quite likely that the person who did kill these boys is no longer alive. However, that doesn't stop us from investigating these cases. Uh, we do not close any homicide cases until we have solved them. This case will remain open until 
Uh, we have solved it, and this is another investigative step that we are taking amongst many that have been taken over the last uh, 70 years plus. Joining us now to talk more about this is Eve Lazarus, host of the Cold Case Canada, Cold Case Canada podcast. Eve, thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I know you've written extensively about this. Uh, you've been on the show talking about this uh, as well. So when you hear about this new partnership or this hope to uh, get to some kind of break in the case of Babes in the Woods, what do you think? I am so excited to hear this news. It, it's um, an incredible step forward. And I know that they've been trying to get um, a DNA profile for, for quite a while now to submit to these public databases. And up until this point, they haven't been able to. So this is a great step forward. And, um, you know, hopefully they'll be able to um, connect with one of their, their relatives, yeah? Uh, yeah, I, I, the details of this, and again, this won't be uh, anything new to you at all, but for people who, who aren't really familiar with the case, it's just uh, it just the, all of the, the, the details about it, and, and Sergeant Addison talked about it briefly in the news conference, that these, these children had been bludgeoned uh, by a hatchet. That hatchet was found near the bodies. They were covered in a woman's coat. I think there was, there was food that was still preserved uh, nearby where uh, the remains were found. It's just got so many bizarre details. Details. It's kind of the biggest mystery in Vancouver, isn't it? You know, biggest murder mystery. And I think it would be so amazing if it was solved. Or at least, you know, as um, Sergeant sort of mentioned, that um, the, uh, the murderer is long dead, most likely. But it would be so great to give these boys their names back. For you, what is it about this case that really got your attention? Because, again, you have written about it so much and, and talked about it over the years. Oh, there's so much to it, you know, with the whole history of post-war Vancouver and um, how they were found. It was wildly thought that the mother or the guardian had killed them. And it's probably true. And I guess when I started researching that and going through annual reports through the Vancouver Police Department from the 1940s, and it was just horrifying how many women had killed their children by, you know, throwing them over the bridge or gassing them in the oven and then committing suicide that, you know, you, it's it's so hard to imagine that there was no social assistance back then and um, it really little help and uh, unmarried mothers would have been completely ostracised. So you, you can kind of, when you look at the history and the times, you can kind of see how that might have happened. It, it, it really is. And I mean, no matter how you look at it, we are, we're talking about two dead children. I, I think they're, they're guessing the ages are seven and eight, uh, that they were killed in 1948, not discovered for five years uh, and, until five years later by that groundskeeper. I mean, it's just such a, a horrible, horrible story, no matter how you look at it. Like you said, having some kind of, it almost feels like I, I think people that are like you and, and people that are interested in this, they want some kind of closure for these kids. Absolutely. And I think one of the sad things about this case was when it was originally found, when they originally found the skeletons, they identified them as a girl and a boy. And this really set the investigation on the wrong path for 40 years, you know, looking for a missing brother and a sister. And it really wasn't until DNA came on the scene in the 90s and the Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit were formed that they found that it was actually two boys. And they had to really start all over again. And, um, you know, it's interesting now that 25 years later, you know, DNA might move it forward again.
And that's an interesting point because I know when they announced this or when the the individual Anthony Redgrave joined Vancouver Police earlier today, uh, this is Redgrave Research Forensic Services. Uh, They're based in Massachusetts and and there is some hope that they will be able to advance it even further. And I guess that's one of the things too, in that it's been such a long time, but we need to remember with with every bit of new technology, there is a chance. Well, it's been interesting that they've been working the case, you know, fairly consistently. I was amazed back in 2015 how much work that they'd done going over the case again. And they even exhumed a body back then that they thought might have been linked to the babes in the woods. And, but again, the DNA wasn't sufficient enough to, you know, be conclusive or not. So this will be really interesting to find um, if something else happens. But it's you know a long road ahead. They have to submit the DNA, hope that you know that there's a match, and and then build a, a family tree. It could be up to a thousand people or more, even. Um, so it's by no means you know a slam dunk, but <laughs> at least it's a step forward. It's hopeful. Uh, and, and when you mentioned the family tree, and uh, Sergeant Addison talked about that earlier today too, because I mean I guess there there is a possibility uh, that there could be relatives, there could be distant relatives, or people that are connected to these two boys. Oh yeah, and um, you know they did this with the Golden State Killer. It's how that they got him. But it was fascinating to see that you know the amount of work that they had to do. I think they got over um, a thousand possible family members. And they had to narrow it down from there. They finally got it down to, to two people and they were able to, you know, get his DNA and, and confirm that he was a Golden State killer. But, you know, this is hugely expensive and it's an incredible amount of work. And what will it, do you imagine what it might be like one day when we find out or when police announce that they have uh, been able to trace down a new lead or, or have some answers as to who these two boys were? Well, it'll be just incredible, and I think it'll give hope to a lot of people that have got unsolved murders, you know, relatives that are still there, that police are actually, you know, still looking and and don't actually shut these cases. And we mentioned DNA, and and you mentioned the the Golden State case, and I I guess, too, keeping this in the public's eye, reminding people about this, because really, uh, the DNA is only going to work if it matches with somebody, and for that, more people uh, need to submit uh, to these websites or submit for the the genetic testing, I would imagine, to even uh, give them a chance uh, of finding this out and trying to build that family tree. Right, and and also when the Golden State Killer was caught, um, they were they had free range to go through Ancestry and all the you know various databases down in the states. But now that they've tightened up with privacy concerns, people have to actually um, uh, submit their you know, give permission to submit their DNA and into GEDmatch and so forth. So it's narrowed down the field from hundreds of thousands of people to you know a much smaller pool. All right. Well, Eve, I hope uh, we talk to you soon or or at some point uh, with uh, another advance in this case or more information to share. But thank you so much for joining the uh, the show today to talk about this. I much much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. That is Eve Lazarus. Uh, She is the host of the Cold Case Canada podcast, also written several books about cold cases in this country. And this one in Vancouver. And if you've ever been to the Vancouver Police Museum, you would know that there is a display of 
the Babes in the Woods case dating back to 1953. That's when skeletal remains of two boys were discovered by a groundskeeper near Beaver Lake in Stanley Park. And there is now hope that Redgrave Research Forensic Services, which has joined forces with the VPD, could help build a family tree, could find some new leads in this very, very cold case. All right. If you work 55 hours or more per week, you need to really pay attention to this because a new report, it was put out by the World Health Organization, says that people that work more than 55 hours are at serious risk, that working that much is a serious health hazard. And this is data that was collected before the pandemic. But of course, the pandemic is having an impact on this as well. Let's bring in Jennifer Newman, a workplace psychologist, to talk a little bit more about this report. Thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Uh, is it any surprise to you? This is, uh, this is information that was collected uh, looking at people uh, 2016, and it said it found that uh, about 745,000 people around the world uh, died from stroke and heart disease, and they were able to link uh, those deaths with long working hours. No, it's a really, uh, it's a really sobering study. And I think um, even though it was done pre-COVID, I think there are some lessons to be learned for us uh, moving forward in the, in the COVID era uh, in terms of, you know, how remote work can actually increase uh, health outcomes or po- negative health outcomes and also what we can do actually about that, knowing what we know now that we've been um, really thrust into a work-from-home situation and having uh, increased hours as a result in some cases. Uh, right, because it really does seem like extremes, and perhaps more in the beginning of the pandemic, we were talking more about job loss and loss of work, but a lot of people now have also been talking about that shift to maybe working at home and not being able to unplug. Yeah, that is a that is a, an issue. Um, one of the things that um, I've noticed in my work is that people have had an increase of hours due to the lack of cues as to when to start and stop working. So a professional I worked with used uh, his commute to decompress and transition from work to home, and that was just kind of a natural way of, of deciding, okay, I've stopped working and I'm going to decompress and then I'm going to come back into my home and my relationships and, and I'm going to be... Um, you know, now practicing my work-life balance. And unfortunately, what's happened is is those cues are missing. So even including breaks, right? People working from home might have been cued by colleagues, hey, let's get a coffee or, you know, go for a walk or something, or hey, it's lunchtime. But uh, so what happens is people have no bearings. So time kind of uh, collapses into itself, and all these boundaries start blurring. And so you'll see people sending and receiving email at any time, And with that comes this feeling of, oh, is there an expectation, and perhaps it's explicit or implicit, that um, I have to answer all the time, and I have to be available all the time. And um, which then leads to some fear about, well, you know, if I'm not, what happens to my job? And uh, also guilt. And those those, um, also will result in people sending and receiving email all the time uh, and giving it to, to colleagues and not stopping. So I think it's the, um, the problem of time kind of compressing and not having any general cues that, oh, now I can stop working. So days just last seem to last forever that way.
And do you think we make enough of a connection in that, uh, again, looking at the, the data in this study, and it's uh, pretty big, it was looking at uh, people in 194 countries uh, working that 55 hours or more. Uh, it, it looks specifically at the heightened risk of stroke and heart disease. Do we make mm-hmm. the connection enough that it's not just that you might get tired or you might be more stressed, that it does take a physical toll? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, the study's really speaking to the cumulative effects that occur over time because uh, people are working those long hours over time and then finally at the end of their lives, that's when the heart disease and stroke issues start to um, emerge. But there's also a lot of mental health impacts of working over time that will be emerging more um, consistently on a more short-term basis, right? So you'll see increases in burnout and the emotional effects of that. Um, People become overwhelmed and restless uh, they may lose interest in enjoyable activities, so it doesn't become something they even want, feel like they want to do, so it can kind of feed on itself. Um, feelings of helplessness and hopelessness are common when people feel burnt out from working too much. And then you get cynicism where people are like, well, you know, I, I can't help it, I have to do it, and, you know, it's demanded of me, and then the feeling of resentment and sadness. So it has a very heavy toll emotionally, which we do know is part of how um, heart disease and stroke can actually manifest later in life because people will start doing things like not exercising because they're spending all their time at, at work or uh, having constant sleep issues, which are very detrimental physically and including poor nutrition because people won't eat properly and people don't tend to eat properly when they're they're exhausted. Uh yeah, sorry. Just, you mentioned as well the whole the the social aspect of when mm-hmm. you're physically at the office. It might be a coworker that says, "Let's go grab a coffee," or or, or that. Do we do do we also kind of uh, not realize the toll that takes? And that when you're working from home, and it maybe isn't something you were doing uh, before the pandemic, you're working at home, and your break might be throwing in a load of laundry or emptying the dishwasher. It's not that social aspect of leaving work, going to have a coffee, and and what and what kind of healthy aspect that has. That's a that's a very good point. Um, that people will not take breaks um, because they will move on to maybe another activity, as you said, you know, something that has to be done in the home. Um, and we know from other studies that rejuvenating, taking breaks, taking vacations, um, and you mentioned it, you know, taking a break in your workday, actually is really important to restoring you uh, mentally and physically. So those are very important. Um, a lot of people now, of course, are deferring their vacations. Like, why do I want to go on a vacation? I have nowhere to go. So uh, as a result, there you have people not rejuvenating, not restoring themselves. And um, also, you know, it, it takes a toll on relationships, too. Um, if you're uh, starting to feel burnt out, if there's never a break, it's just kind of an unending treadmill, um, there's con- there can be conflict in the home and um, partners or spouses or friends, relatives, the kids, you know, will just feel like they're missing their loved one because that person has kind of checked out. And, um, and that's one thing that happens with your brain, right? When you're burnt out, when you have too much fatigue, when you've been working too much without a break, there's just difficulty focusing on a lack of concentration. People get foggy. You hear about this sort of COVID brain fog. Some of that is just um, absolute fatigue not just with the uh, pandemic itself, but also just in the way we're handling it. 
Uh, and, and again, this, this particular study looked at information pre-pandemic, but this mm-hmm. obviously will resonate with a lot of people that are still working those long hours and working at home. What do you suggest then people watch for as far as signs that they're, they're experiencing that or that they should really, they, they need to do something because the path they're on isn't necessarily a healthy one? Yeah, there's some there's some definite signs and symptoms. Um, you know that chronic kind of concept of uh, emotional exhaustion, exhaustion, those feelings of helplessness and hopelessness that I just talked about. Uh, having trouble in your relationship. You know, we don't see you anymore, but you're kind of in the house, but you're gone. Dis- you know, kind of disengaged, loss of interest in in doing any enjoyable activities. Um, and you know, one of the things that that um, I would say to people, really, that's important in all of this uh, work from home, and this is in the in the post-vaccine reality too, which I'll come to in a second. But one of the things is the need to intentionally create structure and boundaries. So, talking to your boss about, you know, what are my established work hours? I just want to be clear about that. And my start and end times, and my established break times. Um, these boundaries are really important and require that kind of intentionality and support from from a supervisor or manager. But it can also be done as well by staff. Like if you set up regular scheduled meetings with your supervisor or manager and just talk about what's being worked on and your progress, uh, you know, say a daily huddle or a once-a-week meeting, because what will happen is people get um, a feeling that they're kind of out of sight, out of mind, and they haven't heard from their manager for a while, or when they do, it's some rushed email. It's much better if it's a regularly scheduled meeting that they have, um, you know, Zoom, phone call, what what have you, with that particular person so they can keep conversation going about what's going on in their task lists. Uh, also about um, establishing work, those work hours, like I was saying, you know, talking to the supervisor and manager about, hey, I'm, you know, time's kind of mushing together and I'm I'm not coping very well and I need to just be really clear, like, this is when I'm going to be able to respond to things and this is when I'm not, but I do want to keep regular contact with you. Because another part of this also are people's fears about, you know, about their jobs, you know. Am I going to get promoted? Are people being, am I seen? And and some of this is uh, showing that uh, we're going to be able to have an opportunity here to move away from FaceTime. So that's, you know, I can see you working, therefore you are. Uh, and getting back to, you know, it's project and task-oriented rather than um, being seen in the office. But I think also, like, one of the big things here is we do have a looming post-vaccine reality right now. And I don't know if you've been hearing about it, but there's a lot of conversation about work-from-home hybrid models Mm -hmm. where people are actually staying in the home, are working. And the irony, too, there is that sometimes that can be beneficial. You know, you mentioned throwing a load of laundry in or, you know, people going, getting their kids and stuff like that and then coming back and continuing to work. There's some flexibility in that for people. So it's not all a bad thing. It's just the intentionality around structure and boundaries that we have to fill in now. And uh, managers are, you know, talking about that and thinking about that now. Um, when we're moving into a post-vaccine reality, it's going to be really important. Um I, I'm often talking to managers about, you know, look at the jobs and the projects and your organizational needs and think about what's actually required of each job and, you know, who who are you able to allow work from home and who and when do people have to come in in person? There's the key piece of social isolation too, right? right. Like you have to be, 
um, in in connection with colleagues. So when is that going to be orchestrated? And uh, people say, oh, you know, it sounds like, you know, we can't have any spontaneity. Well, in this day and age, we're going to need to plan our collaborative and creative time together, especially right now. We're still in the home and we're still having, um, you know, social distancing and all the protocols. Um, So it's a good time to start to think about that right now because we are going to start moving into that reality, uh, hopefully, you know, fingers crossed in the fall. All right. Uh, Jennifer Newman, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much uh, for your insight in this. Appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, Vancouver Council is meeting today and a few things on the agenda that will have an impact on uh, what people do with their spare time and uh, where they go during their spare time. Talking about the alcohol consumption in public plazas pilot uh, recommendations uh, coming before council and waiving patio fees. Once again, we talked about this last year as well for restaurants that have been able to not only expand or build patios, but waiving the fees that would normally come along with those patio tables. Well, let's bring in Ian Tostenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Association. Ian, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Jill, how are you? Uh, Very well. How about you? I lost you. Oh, can you hear me? Sorry, Jill, I lost you there. Sorry. That's okay. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Is my problem? <laughs> Excellent. Uh, thanks for having me on. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. Um, this is good news about this. I mean, you know, certainly from uh, the, the fee point of view, uh, it could be you know eight hundred thousand, two thousand dollars, depending on the size of the patio, for licensing fees. So every little bit helps right now. And I think the idea of letting Granville Island or probably Granville Street open up and to, to patio dining areas and expand it, I think, is another great idea. So, um, I mean, it just fits with what we're being told is to be outside. It's better to be outside. And I think it's just going to add a whole ambience to, to Granville Street. Uh, let's start with the patio fees, because I think that okay. was one thing, too, that we first started. Uh, unless you were a restaurant owner or you were very close to that, I think people didn't really uh, get how much it costs restaurants to even have patio seats and and that it does. There are the, these fees. So how important is it? To, and I think that the number was that it, it, the revenue is being lost to the city are about one point two million. But how important is it for restaurants that this happen again this year? Oh, it's, I mean, it's really important. I mean, if. Every little, like, if it's, if your fee would say, well, let's just pick a, a restaurant based on meters, square meters, but eight, eight hundred, nine hundred, a thousand dollars at a time when there's very little revenue coming in, um, that makes a big difference. That's going to allow the, the patio owner to take that money and, and invest and make a better patio because you're, there's been some real great innovation in patios because they're here to stay. And the province, uh, it's their intention to make temporary patios permanent so that we don't have to go through this relicensing uh, procedure every year. So I think I think the counselor, Sarah Kirby Young, is onto something here. I think she's she's being very, her directions reflecting the kind of needs that the industry is into right now, needs right now. Uh, so do, do you imagine a time then or do you see a time in the future uh, when things are back at full capacity, uh, the patios will be here to stay. Do you think that the fees then will come back, but that would that be okay for restaurants? I think the governments will look for revenue sources for sure, but I think, you know, it's going to be several years before we're even stable uh, again. So I'm hoping that 
Um, there's other ways, you know, they, even, even if it's a little bit of a fee to cover their administration costs, but there's no rhyme or reason to charge what they're charging right now in the city. I mean, these are just fees I've just put on just because. So, uh, you know, I think we'd like to keep them as lean as possible. And um, being that patios do attract other ways and they do attract a tax base and an ambience for the, the, um, for the city. So if you think about it, we shouldn't really not be taxed by putting a patio in but we'll, i'm sure someone will have an idea about some fees to recover but 1.2 million dollars in the whole scheme of things isn't a lot for the city of vancouver that's that's true and but i would imagine the fees themselves for a restaurant owner it does make a big difference huge yeah absolutely absolutely um let's talk a bit more about granville street this was also okay. an idea put forward as far as kind of revitalizing it uh it's an area that i walk quite often uh, to and from work uh, i'm lucky enough that i still come into the office uh it's not looking good right now so do you think this will make a difference yeah i think it'll give the ambience like i uh, i was going uh, up or down on lawnsdale street and i'm going ah, there's so much traffic like what's going on here i suddenly realized half the road is designated to patios and i thought it worked and people were enjoying themselves, and so there was this collaboration between traffic and people. I think Granville Island needs, or Granville Street needs more than what it has right now, which is, you know, parking on the side of the street, and, you know, there's no ambience there. I think that letting those restaurants and closing off, they've done it in Kelowna and Bernard Avenue, they've done it uh, in Victoria, and they're now doing it at White Rock. I think it's going to really, you know, allow uh, some investment to go in by those restaurants. I mean, right now, there's not much they can really do. They can put a little patio on the sidewalk, and it doesn't attract much. But I think letting them get on the streets, close a couple of blocks off, and and, uh, and create some ambience, I think um, they can dress it up for not a lot of money, and I think it'd be a lot really good for Gravel Street. I really do. There, there's one restaurant, and the name is, I'm blanking on the name. I keep meaning to take a picture every time I walk by it, because it is, uh, hands down, it should get the Innovation Award. They have built this beautiful wooden patio uh, on that stretch of Granville Street, and then they've ducked it out with, with fl- uh, hanging baskets and flowers. Uh, so I think when you're sitting there, you actually, you actually wouldn't know that you were sitting on Granville Street with buses whizzing by you and, and, and what have you. They've done such a great job and i think when you look at that you kind of you you could get an idea on what it might look like oh yeah a carnival sort of atmosphere and um it's funny when you you know it's funny with 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 private enterprise if you take the rules away they'll get really innovative and if you tell them that there's likely this a lot of this will be permanent they'll even spend more money because there'll be a good return on those uh, those uh, on those patios in time the problem has been is that you know, the high fees in the past um, was somewhat of a deterrent, but not always. And then the location and can I get enough space and can I, you know, I've got to hire staff to manage the patio. Is it all worth it? So opening up like that, they'll get a lot of a lot of really good and, and innovative investment into that area of the city. Uh, do you get any sense, though, I would imagine one of the obstacles, even though TransLink has said it will work with the city, it is a pretty busy transit route and there, that would have to change. Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about that. Um, I don't think it's going to be too hard to reroute because we're talking here, what, three blocks, is it? Probably. Yeah. So I don't think it's going to be that disruptive. Um, you know, on the same time I was reading today, the, the transit ridership right now is, is, is down significantly. So I think we can sort of deal with a couple of detours here to deal with, um, with you know, in the best interests of, of Granville Street and some ambience downtown Vancouver. 
Uh, one of the other uh, things that council is looking at today is this idea of the plazas where uh, alcohol can be legally consumed, even though I, I think uh, I, I, I dare say every plaza became a plaza where alcohol was being consumed, whether it was legal or not, last summer. Um, the, the, the locations are out there. There's one, the new uh, Robson Street Plaza uh, in downtown Vancouver, uh, 17th and Canby, I believe, 27th and Fraser. They've pulled the one that was proposed for 4th Avenue and Maple in Kitsilano. Uh, that's no longer yep. on the table for this year. Uh, are those in competition with restaurants or, or how are restaurant owners feeling about that? No, I think the way to look at it, Jill, is the more um, the more people we can get downtown, especially now, the better. And so if you allow people to go to a plaza and uh, and let's 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 be honest here, they're not going down there to have a party and go crazy. They're going down there to enjoy a glass of wine or something. So what I'd like to see is trying to direct as many of those people into the surrounding food uh, and food and beverage places, maybe uh, buy their uh, food and beverage from those places so you can do that. So buy your hamburger and get a bottle of wine and go sit in the plaza and enjoy it. So I think there's a way to, to, um, to, to sort of put some business back into the surrounding businesses. And um, we're expecting the, the, the uh, province to give us a green light on being able to sell mixed cocktails. So there could be some innovation around that. So say, you want to go to the plaza and you felt like having a margarita and or a Caesar, it's quite likely you'll be able to get a mixed drink in time, you know, in short order. And, and again, more innovation, more reasons. And, and if people are downtown, the plaza are going to say, let's go get a pizza and let's come back here and eat it or let's get a hamburger or do something. So I think it's, I think it's good in the, in the biggest sense overall will be, again, it'll be incremental to what we're doing right now. Uh, it seems even it seems a bit strange that you can't do that right now, given that with the change and restaurants and pubs being able to uh, give alcoholic beverages with takeout. I mean, you can get uh, one of the various uh, vodka or gin drinks in a can. So where's the where's the reasoning there that you can right now get it in a can, but what you can't get it in a takeout cup? <laughs> I know. I think there's. I just think, again, it's just kind of these things have never been contemplated. These are the benefits of the pandemic where people never thought about this. They always said, well, of course, you can sell it in a standard bottle. It has to be all sealed and stuff. And so um, I think that, you know, what we find with government right now, if we can go with a reasonable plan that's got, you know, safety built into it and, uh, and you know, from a public safety perspective, um, they're being really good about it and sort of saying that makes a lot of sense, particularly when we say, the rules of the game, the best place for all of us to be, and it's going to be like this all summer, is to be outside. So, you know, um, innovation, you know, like I grabbed some food and I sort of thought, where are we going to eat it? Like you go to a restaurant, you sure you can get takeout and delivery, but if you're right there, it'd be really nice to go to a plaza and just take whatever you want to take across the street and sit down and enjoy it. So I think it's going to be, when I, you know, when you look at it, I think it's going to be a real addition to the restaurants. I don't think anybody's going to see it as, as competition. Uh, and have you had any word? Uh, the Premier today said that next week we're expecting to hear uh, from himself, from Dr. Henry, about, uh, yeah. he said he'll have more information on a reopening plan. I don't want to oversell it to people because my guess is it's not going to be a concrete uh, plan with numbers and dates. But have you heard anything as far as in-person, inside dining coming back? My wish would be to say we can open on X date. And we have asked the question, we've had meetings, but here's the reluctance. On the other side, they don't want to say, we're going to open restaurants next Wednesday or week Wednesday. Uh, and then the signal is, well, I guess things must be looking pretty good right now. So a long weekend, so let's go give her. So they're trying to keep it muted, and we understand that. And But it's going to take us some time to open. So what I think, this is my own personal thought, and we have, we're having another meeting this afternoon, 
is that they'll say, look, we'll open restaurants. So it's going to be plus one or two weeks, I think, moving ahead. That buys us some time uh, to continue the vaccinations. It's going to buy the restaurants some time to, to resupply. And, we're, and we could talk about this sometime, Joe, but there's going to be a tremendous labor shortage. So it's not going to be easy for them to get staff. And I think we'll reopen. Um, we'll reopen. And I'm hoping that they'll acknowledge this 10 o'clock and uh, move it to maybe 12 o'clock. Mm. And that will accommodate patios and the whole thing will make some sense to us because we know how to provide a safe environment. That's not an issue here. I just think that they um, they need to be, um, the confidence the government needs to be around the numbers. We'll see what the numbers look like next week. But I, I think it's going to be, I mean, I had more phone calls like, what do you know? We don't know anything, but we know that it's probably going to be somewhere around, I predict, the beginning of June. So any restaurants listening to the show should start making that preparation. You know, be prepared to open next week, but be prepared not to open for maybe a week after it. you got to sort of play it both ways. All right. Sounds good. Ian, we'll leave it there. Thanks again so much for coming back on the show. Thanks, Jill. Always.